right, now joined uh, by Jacobin editor and publisher Bhaskar Sankara and uh, Age of Napoleon host and uh, Trillburn on Twitter, uh, Everett uh, Rummage. Uh, I was kind of thinking about starting this with the, um, the Spike Lee uh, Bitcoin commercial because he's talking about digital rebellion, but uh, the, the- I didn't the even see that. It'd be too dark. You don't I see it? The thing, no. I've been, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been locked doing accounting work all day, so I completely missed that. Well, okay, in that case, we'll do it anyway. Jeez. So here we go. Currency uh, is not current. Old money, as rich as it looks, is flat out broke. Don't believe me? I got the receipts. We call it green, but it's only white. Where's the women? The black folks and the people of color. Native Americans got a nickel. A nickel! People don't even stop to pick up a nickel off the side. Seven million Americans have no bank account. 20 million are underbanked. Old money's not gonna pick us up. It pushes us down, exploits, systematically oppresses. But new money, new money is positive. Inclusive. Fluid. Strong. Culturally rich. Where status is anything but status quo. Do your own research. The digital rebellion is here. Old money is out. New money is in. So there you go. Uh, fiat currency, it's, uh, it's bad. It systematically oppresses. It's, it's just for white men. Uh, but, uh, but Bitcoin is exciting. It's, uh, it's multiracial. It lifts us up. My first impression, uh, I'm, I'm really struck by a couple of years ago, some viewers might remember this, the payday loan industry went on a big PR blitz. And uh, it was very much in the same vein as this. You know, yeah. the, we, we serve communities that are underserved by the big banks. We're the insurgents. You know, we're the, the kind of the hip young way to bank and, you know, and pay 40% interest or whatever. Um, so it's interesting that um, we seem to be recycling <laughs> that talking point. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it really is like uh, the just the way that, the fact that they use like I think what I think my favorite detail about it is the uh, is the use of systematic in the beginning you know that it uh, it systematically uh, oppresses uh, whereas you know whereas the new money you know, lifts, uh, lifts us up because that's the that seems like one of the most distinctive features of the um, like post twenty twenty landscape that uh, the everything is either structural or systematic. So that video was so bad it broke my entire internet. Uh, like it, it just completely like there's no internet in my entire building. I'm getting texts from my neighbors. It was just the video. I love that they had do your own research because that's what every single conspiracy theorist I've ever met has told me about it. Hey, hey, do your own research. <laughs> do your own research. Um, and it fits the level of like just absolute prank insanity that is. Um, most crypto stuff. All yeah. crypto stuff. Unless you're trying to do something illegal. Like if you're doing illegal gambling, if you're trying to like evade US sanctions, like there's a few legitimate reasons for, for cryptocurrency. And that's that's basically it. 
Yeah, people always say it's useless. I say, no, it's not. Criminals get so much use out of it. Terrorists get so much use out of it. I mean, it really, there is an inherent utility to it. It's just not for people who are not, you know, breaking the law. Right. Some laws are meant to be broken. True. One time, and that was uh, because this little Irishman, uh, Conor McGregor, just thought that he could take on Floyd Mayweather, and I was like, "This is the surest bet of all time." How does one illegal gamble? I like typed that into my browser. How do you illegally gamble? And apparently, uh, <laughs> doing it through crypto. I might pass the statute or whatever. Anyway, it was, it was a sure bet. Um, it was facilitated by, I don't even think it was Bitcoin. I think it was like LTE or something like lit, lit coin, light coin. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Lit coin. <laughs> lit coin. Right? That would be, that's the new, that's the new Elon Musk, uh, backed, backed, uh, Zoomer <laughs> craze. <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. I can actually imagine that as a Spike Lee commercial, you know, Bitcoin is out. Litcoin is in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it is, uh, it is Bastille Day, uh, so uh, on the subject of, of breaking the law and, uh, and also uh, on, uh, on the subject uh, of, uh, of rebellions, you know, possibly more meaningful ones than the digital rebellion that Spike Lee is talking about. I guess the, uh, the jury is, uh, is out on that. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, I guess one way into this, you know, is that this um, so so Jacobin obviously uh, is is called Jacobin uh, so uh, because of the, uh, the the French and uh, and Haitian uh, revolutions uh, I will I'll preempt you since I know you're gonna you know, want to bring this in very quickly the uh, Jacobin <laughs> runs their uh, 789 uh, special uh, Bastille Day uh, subscriptions if you subscribe today. Um, so uh, we'll start, you know, maybe we could talk just a little bit about, you know, about Bastille Day and, and, and about the, uh, the French Revolution and then about the kind of wider significance of that for, you know, emancipatory politics, you know, like why you'd start a socialist magazine in the 21st century and, you know, call Jacobin. But um, uh, Everett, since, since you actually do a, a, a history podcast, uh, you're, you're up to... I'm a couple episodes behind, but when I was last listening, uh, you're were, you were talking about the Haitian Revolution uh, at that point, um, and uh, and I certainly heard the stuff we were covering, you know, Bastille Day and the in the early stages of uh, the French Revolution. So, you want to start us off with the event itself? Sure. Um, well, there's lots of places you could start the story, but you know, basically on this day in 1789. Um, France was involved in this financial slash political crisis. Basically, the, the, the king, whose personal finances, of course, were synonymous with the state, the king had run out of credit. And so he needed money. And these bankers came to him and they said, we are willing to offer you this very generous loan package if you recall the old parliament, the old um, a state's general, which was a kind of proto-parliament. And the king had no choice but to agree. And um, over time, this um, a state's general kind of through a series of crises and political back and forth evolved into sort of an alternate center of power within France that was pro-reform and opposed to the king. And kind of no one knew what direction things would take, if the king and his court would be able to reassert authority, or if this new thing, the Estates General, would somehow push forward and bring the country into a, a new political age. Then the king dismissed his finance minister. And in Paris, which is where a lot of the supporters of the Estates General and who were radicals lived, this news spread. And as the news spread, the finance minister was very popular and he was seen as a man of the people. And so as this terrible news spread that he was fired, it kind of got embellished and exaggerated. And before you know it, people are talking about, this is the beginning of the end. The King is going to call down troops into Paris. He's going to dissolve the assembly. We've, you know, we're unless we do something we've lost, it's all over. And so the 
crowds that are out in the streets discussing this news kind of start to get this momentum of something needs to be done. We need to do something. And before you know it, it's turned into more of a sort of riot protest situation. Uh, the government loses control over the city. The, um, the, they call out the, the army to put down the, the rebellion, but the, the soldiers join the, the, the mob and the king doesn't know what to do. And so for over a day, the city is controlled by these mobs. They don't really know what to do. They know, though, that if it does come down to arms with the king, they're going to need ammunition and weapons. And they know that the ammunition and weapons are stored at the Bastille. The Bastille was kind of like the Guantanamo Bay of this era. It was seen as this kind of symbol of, of tyranny and the overreach of the monarchy and the abuses of the monarchy. And so it's got this symbolic significance and it's where the gunpowder is. So the Bastille is surrounded. The commander actually has no interest in throwing down with this mob. He's got a very small garrison. They're not prepared for this. They have no food, no water. And he tries to negotiate with them, but, you know, he's a soldier. He's not going to give up his position to a bunch of, you know, lawless civilians. So they're at this impasse. Shots are fired. It turns into kind of a battle. Remember, there's all these soldiers in the crowd who've deserted to uh, join the revolutionaries. And so they fight like almost like a conventional battle against the Bastille garrison. Eventually the Bastille garrison realizes that there's kind of nothing they can do. And then it's over and they surrender. They let in the crowd. The commander, unfortunately is uh, torn limb from limb and killed uh, even though he, he did give up the, uh, the fortification eventually. And the crowd gets in there and realizes uh, there's just not much in the Bastille. It's more of a symbol than a real important installation for the regime. There's about 12 people imprisoned in there. Sources differ. Um, and they're mostly uh, actually counterfeiters, not political prisoners. Or And there's no you know, scary torture devices, which were very popular in the political pamphlets. Um, it's just kind of a semi-deserted place that's used for these kind of you know, whatever odds and ends the royal government needs it to be used for. Um, the crowd kind of mills around for a while and they get their, their weapons, but there's not many there. Um, and that's kind of it. Um, it was kind of an anticlimax, really, when you look at it up close. The real importance, of course, is that people had taken this popular action against the government and they'd crossed that threshold mm -hmm. of actually bearing arms against the king and against the government. And so that's, you know, the symbolic significance is much, much beyond any of the practical consequences. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so that's, um, you know, I mean, this, this kind of, this becomes the like very quickly, right? Like has this massive symbolic significance, like the next year they're already doing like a big commemoration of the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. Yeah, the, actually, that that day, the anniversary, the following year, is um, I think actually probably more than anything else. The reason it's still considered France's national holiday is because by that point, the king had been forced to accept the reforms, had become a constitutional monarch, and they threw this big party kind of to say, "Hey, what a year it's been!" You know, mm -hmm. things started with this this terrible day at the Bastille. Now things are looking up. The, you know, the, the, the king and the court have agreed with the revolutionaries. The, there's national unity again for the first time since the crisis began. People of Paris built this really remarkable kind of outdoor stadium structure, uh, mostly just with their hands, you know, with, with shovels and picks. And um, they had this big outdoor festival with, you know, all the people of Paris there. People came in from all over France. Uh, the king swore an oath to the constitution. Um, General Lafayette, who was the leader of the National Guard, um, also, you know, swore an oath of office and kind of put him himself at the center of attention. Um, and it was this very optimistic day that was supposed to be the culmination of this process. Um, huge parties. Parties lasted three days uh, after. And um, then, of course, that turned out to be just kind of the last day of calm before the revolution you know, really descended into violence. Um, but, you know, it was in people's memories through all those bad years of the 1790s uh, as this, 
you know, this festival of national unity, um, the, the feast of the Federation, they called it. And, um, you know, I think in a, in a certain sense, all of the subsequent Bastille Day celebrations have been trying to get back to that moment. Uh, even though, you know, we now know from subsequent history that that was a, that was a false sense of unity. Uh, so, I mean, like, uh, this is, uh, again, Jacobin is called Jacobin is the Bastille Day, you know, subscription, uh, subscription drive. Uh, normally there'd be, a, there'd be an actual physical uh, party. And uh, yeah, maybe. we had a big one a few years ago, actually. We had, um, we had a party that attracted so many people that some unfortunate poor young people joined the line thinking this was just some cool Brooklyn party and were probably really disappointed when they got inside and it was like Chapo in conversation with Jagobin. <laughs> what the hell? Um, yeah, I remember people asking me why there wasn't a full bar, why there was just like one keg of like terrible, terrible free donated beer we got. Um, but actually, um, Everett's account of of, um, of the storm in the Bastille, I actually didn't really know. I thought this was some sort of huge climactic event. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the mythology that was built around the storming of the Winter Palace. Like, obviously, the Russian Revolution was this really important world historic event. But the actual storming of the Winter Palace was like very anticlimactic. There was no resistance whatsoever. Like, there was no... Like they definitely ransacked the palace and got drunk off the Tsar's booze and whatever, whatever else. So there was some of that, you know, festival around it. But when they reenacted it year after year uh, to create drama and to symbolize what the whole arc of the revolution was from 1915 to really, so 1905 to really um, the end of the Civil War, they, you know, added conflict and they depicted the whites as like defending uh, the. Uh, Winter Palace to the very last man or whatever, uh, whatever else. Um, so I imagine that Bastille is kind of, uh, was kind of like that. I love the, uh, the the image of the storming of the Winter Palace to me is always from the Eisenstein film. Mm -hmm. the, guy, the guy puts his boot on the symbol of the czar in the gate so he can get over the gate. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's so, I mean, in reality, they came in a side door and there was no one there. But that image is just is so good that it's almost better than the than the reality. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'll, that's um, like the. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, Einstein, Eisenstein is really good at that. Like the uh, the battleship uh, Potemkin, uh, the uh, the the scene like leading up. Spoiler uh, for for anybody on the scene, battleship Potemkin. The uh, the uh, the scene. Leading up to the sailors, you know, mutinying and you know, turning, you know, turning the guns uh, on the uh, on the officers. Remember, there's like a priest who's like uh, has uh, a a big crucifix that he's sort of using like a hammer to sort of do this in his hand, and it's like just such a beautiful little visual detail. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so uh, I think um, the. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about the, uh, the the symbolic, you know, significance of this, and like, um, you know, I mean, obviously, in the in the Jacobin case, you know, it's uh, it's partially, you know, because the French Revolution, but also partially the, the Haitian Revolution. Obviously, the uh, uh, CLR James's uh, Black Jacobins and like the the cover artwork there is is a big influence on the the iconography. Of, uh, of of Jacobin magazine, uh, but of course that's also I remember like uh, Slavoj Žižek saying that he thought that the like the sort of the you know ironically of course because Napoleon tried to crush it later, but that the uh, that the uh, Haitian Revolution is sort of what um, like made the the French Revolution worth it in a way. You know, I mean, like that was the sort of full flowering of of uh, of the you know the promise of human freedom there. Yeah, I mean, I think they um, I both had the, the reason why I think so many generations of socialists looked to the example of the, the French uh, Revolution was just because it was a early example of mass politics actually seizing the levers of state power and transforming society from top to bottom. So obviously there was lots of periods of like peasant revolts and other kind of revolts from from below. Uh, for many, many um, centuries, but here was a revolt that carried out a complete 
transformation of a society from top to bottom. Here was a revolt that, that took a whole new radical idea of liberty, of equality, of, of fraternity, that took uh, Republican uh, principles uh, that, that forcefully um, pushed aside the political remnants of, of feudalism. You know, I'm, I'm a um, kind of fairly doctrinaire Marxist in my, my view of like the transition from feudalism to capitalism. So, um, you know, I, I don't think capitalism came about because of, <laughs> because of uh, a bourgeois revolution. Um, but, but I do think that, that the significance of the mass politics is what would capture people's um, imaginations. And um, the fact that all these vestiges of oppression that had existed for centuries could just be basically wiped away uh, between uh, 1789 and, and, and uh, 1793. Uh, and then obviously also the arc of what happened after uh, the counter-revolution, um, uh, Thermidor, then, uh, then Bonapartism, I think reminds us of a lot of similar arcs in revolutionary um, you know, periods. Obviously, Trotsky famously drew on on um, Bonapartism and drew upon what happened during this period of counter-revolution um, in his analysis of what happened to the Russian Revolution. Lenin, before the Russian Revolution, uh, looked more so than a lot of other um, of his contemporaries to the example of the, uh, of the Jackmans and the Jackman spirit. And obviously, um, Lenin, uh, you don't really associate with the more Republican traditions of like French socialism that were developing in the late 19th century. But like them, he, he drew a lot, I think, on the, um, at least the spirit of, of what the Jacobin revolt, um, you know, meant. So for us, it was really, it, it's, it's, it's maybe in a very rigid way, I think, when you're on the socialist left, you are taught like in some order, the most important revolutions are, you know, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Re Revolution, right? And um, and in a sense, because the French Revolution comes comes um, comes first, you 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 ascribe uh, this kind of um, importance to it. And for Jacobin, to be perfectly honest, I've given people tons of different explanation about why they named it Jacobin. Like, I don't even really remember. It's like, it's like but, the uh, but it's the, safer. It was the safer than the where every time it's different. Yeah, we were going back to like the the, the um, I think earlier uh, revolution, pre-socialist uh, revolution that was more vague in people's mind, but still symbolized uh, upturning. And also the fact that people who have been dormant, it seems, um, you know, quote unquote, uh, scare quotes, dormant for for centuries, uh, can arise and can become you know actors in history can have that agency to get rid of uh, oppression that we, we thought was so natural and i think today so much of the oppression the hierarchy around the world we, that we think of as so natural one day maybe it won't be the same sort of um rapid four years of rupture like the french revolution but i think it will be done away with and we will look at at this as a, a as a really great moment that propelled forward um human society yeah, I mean, that's really well said. I mean, I think that um, I mean, there's another issue, I mean, I guess, with the French Revolution and, and, and socialism, right, which is that there are um, there are multiple competing traditions within the socialist movement about how to think about that relationship. And like, even I think in like Marx, you know, I, I think Marx is a little all over the place on this, but like, I think... Uh, but there is, uh, so there are competing views, but there is like one view according to which uh, the way to think about the relationship between those bourgeois revolutions of the 18th century and, you know, early 19th century and, and you know, transformation of socialism uh, happening in the 20th or 21st century is that, um, is that the, the latter, you know, fulfills the promises made by the former, right? That, they, uh, that you have these. Yeah. And I think we can all agree with that as socialists, that basically the French Revolution set, and the Enlightenment more broadly, in its, in its radical uh, form at least, set out these principles of liberty, of equality, of, of solidarity, that um, capitalism has been unable to fulfill. Capitalism both makes possible through its abundance and through bringing us together in these 
um, new larger places of work and 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 whatever else. Um, but ultimately does not um, does not fulfill. And I think we could all basically agree with that. I mean, I think where there's debates among socialists is um, whether capitalist development of the rise of the bourgeoisie actually needed uh, this new sort of political order or whether it was going to come to to birth in a different way, because uh, you already had the seeds of capitalism um, developing very rapidly out of the English countryside and in the Netherlands and other 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 places. And I'm, I think European history looks a lot different because of the French Revolution. Of course, um, it speeds things up um, dramatically. I think even Napoleon himself, his his um, influence on Europe and the modernization of European bureaucracies and whatever else are are, are undeniable. Um, I'm less certain on. The, just out of ignorance, I'm less certain on like the arc of capitalism as a whole, whether it, it looks a lot different with or without the French Revolution. Uh, French capitalism certainly does look different. I think you probably have some residual power of like certain smallholders and, you know, I don't know. I'm sure French capitalism is very shaped by the, by the French, uh, 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 you know, revolution. But I think that's the kind of debate between the Neil Davidsons of the world who would use the word bourgeois revolution and the Ellen Wood and Bob Brenner and people like that um, who, um, you know, have a different view about the transition from feudalism to, to capitalism. But I don't think that those that latter group of people downplay it as a significant political um, event. Yeah, well, I mean, before throwing Everett, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that if nothing else, um, the the like certainly, I mean, we talked a little bit about the rhetoric and the symbolism, but I mean, I think also just the legal changes that are brought about by the, the French Revolution, uh, which end up being very influential, even in places that weren't, you know, conquered by Napoleon or whatever, uh, you know, are certainly significant in the emergence of capitalism as we know. I mean, like, I think even the idea of like a well-understood distinction between, like, like, the, like, even to have a conversation about, like, things being privatized or things being public property, you know, that kind of distinction, that there's stuff that's the property of the public, you know, at large, as opposed to, like, the property of the king or something, you know, like, I'm sure I'm simplifying a little bit here, but I mean, like, like I think a lot of that has to do with legal changes brought about by the French Revolution. Yeah, that's, I you took the words out of my mouth, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, um, that distinction between public and private did not exist in the old regime. There was some kind of, there was beginning to be some kind of proto understanding of that before the revolution, uh, mostly among like, like uh, lawyers who dealt with this stuff and with legal scholars. Um, but there was no framework anywhere in the world uh, really for property as we think of it. Um, and certainly not any idea of a, um, well, I guess maybe a little bit there was starting to be in America, but the idea of a public trust, um, you know, where there's, you know, certain certain duties that one might have kind of to one's entire community rather than being, you know, for instance, in the old regime, the meat inspectors, that was something that you purchased. You bought the job of meat inspector. And um, what you did with that was kind of considered, you know, hey, you paid to be the meat inspector. You do what you please with it. You know, if that means taking bribes from people or kickbacks or whatever, hey, he bought it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the very idea of, no, well, you're the meat inspector. Your job is to ensure the health of people and make sure that the people producing meat are doing so safely and healthfully. Um, that, um, you know, the, the, the revolution creates these distinctions. But now it is worth saying it doesn't create them out of thin air. People had had these thoughts under the old regimes. And as uh, Baskar pointed out that, you know, there was, um, uh, you know, we are seeing the development of capitalism under the old regimes and the slow, slow, slow disillusion of some of these feudal rights and obligations that had previously governed society. Um, but to me, that is a huge open question as to how, or even if that would have eventually mm -hmm totally dissolved all of those bonds and, and replaced them with something like what we saw in Europe in say, you know, 1816, right after the fall of Napoleon. Um, there's certainly no way that process would have taken 20 years. So I'm going to ask for very mind bending progress. 
I, I'm going to ask a stupid question because I, I really don't know the answer to it. And I feel like one should never ask questions like this live uh, when, when recording. But how much of um, like the French Revolution's influence on changing countries outside of France, like like spurring changes within the English civil service and, 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 and things like that, had to do with the influence of the revolution directly or just the fact that this new revolutionary state was able to mobilize for total war in a way that other states weren't? And was it like the military projection of the revolution's strength all the way through from the revolutionary period through Napoleon? Was was that like the the thing that really shaping states out that France wasn't directly kind of either administrating or, 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 you know, had conquered and set up a puppet government or whatever else? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, You see this process all over every country that opposed Napoleon, um, you know, by... Uh, you know, a- 1805 is kind of the hinge year where, um, you know, Napoleon has just been crowned emperor. It's been a year to the day since he was crowned emperor. And, you know, the kind of consensus in Europe is that he's gone too far. and He's out of control. Everyone re- finally recognizes this now that his ambition has grown far beyond um, you know, what any one man can, can grasp. Um, and, they, and all the great powers of Europe band together and um, Napoleon just annihilates them. 1805, 1806, the, um, he just sweeps aside these armies even more dramatically than the revolutionary armies had been able to. So, you know, they, people think of the re- are thinking of the revolution as a spent force. Napoleon makes it clear that at least the elements of the revolution that make the government strong are still ver- very much developing. Um, mm-hmm. And all these countries are forced to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, we cannot beat these people in the field, or at least, you know, not without relying on a lot of luck. Um, we need to start looking at their system and finding what works for them and implementing it. And so you literally get countries that are are straight up lifting things from the French style administration. Um, they're even, uh, you know, this is also the era when uh, conservative politics really start to develop, which hadn't really been a thing before this, because under the old regimes, there's no conservatism because everyone just obeys. There's no ideology around obeying, really, other than this kind of divine right of kings, kind of this ultra-reactionary stuff. Um, But these countries, to to mobilize their people, start to develop this kind of populism that's like the French populism Mm -hmm. and that it's patriotic. And it's, on a certain level, it's even rational. Um, You know, it's not just saying you must obey. It's trying to reason with people. Um, But it's relying on these very traditional you know, um, love of kind of rural homeland and love of religion and uh, love of the king who is really like your father when you think about it. This type of stuff is is the the roots of conservative politics that I think you can even see today. So um, they're copying the French in all kinds of ways uh, after starting starting roughly like 1807-ish. And that's everything from French-style military tactics and organization all the way up to these very abstract things like, you know, how do we come up with a, with a, uh, you know, a right-wing Prussian Jacobinism to, to make guys, you know, line up at the recruiting, recruiting stations. Well, that's, yeah, that point about the recruiting stations, what I was going to ask about, because I mean, something I got, um, you know, certainly from, from listening to Agent Napoleon and also Mike Duncan's podcast, I, I probably shouldn't admit how much of my knowledge of this stuff is derived from podcasts, but uh, the, uh, but is, that like one of like the really remarkable changes brought about by the, the French Revolution and why they're able to have this total mobilization Oscar is talking about is that like in, in a way, I mean, it kind of seems like the French revolutionaries uh, invented the idea of like patriotic military service, you know, as opposed to just like this is this is a job or maybe this is this is something you were you were forced to do, you know, like kind of kind of dragooned into doing. Uh, and and the the idea that like rather than just like yeah here are these people who are working for you and and you can very slowly move them around because you're paranoid all the time that they're mm-hmm. going to desert uh, this is something that people would enthusiastically volunteer to do in order to defend the nation and that like everybody would be taking pride in what the army was doing. Yeah, this was basically a new thing um, in the 1790s. Um, the, uh, the the government, there's a, a foreign army on, on the march to Paris. The last fortress between Paris and the army falls. 
there's panic in the capital. The government doesn't know what to do. And someone in the government says, I know what to do. I have an idea. He's this military theorist named Lazar Carnot, a very underrated figure in the history of the revolution, I think. And um, he has been reading these enlightenment pamphlets about citizen soldiers. And um, a guy named Guibert made an argument that if you had a government that really took care of its people, that they believed in, that they would fight like the old Roman legions, you know, out of out of obligation and duty, not out of, um, you know, not because they were forced to. So Carnot says, you know, our armies cannot stand up to this invading force. We're, you know, we're in trouble here. Unless we turn things around right now, it's over. So he convinces people to go with this very radical notion of a people's army. And the government releases these two very um, revolutionary documents, the Declaration of the Fatherland in Danger and the Levee en masse, which essentially, the, de the Declaration of the Fatherland in Danger essentially says, hey, we're in trouble here and we need your help, it's addressed to the people of France, um, to beat back the enemy and protect all these new reforms. Then the Levee en masse is, of course, the first ever mass conscription bill in history. They don't actually carry out mass conscription because they couldn't. Um, but in theory, it does recruit all young men into the army and it allows them to build up these gigantic armies uh, that um, not only are massive in number, but where the men are very motivated, they can move very quickly because they don't have to worry about desertions, as you said. Um, and it's really th this tool of these, these people's armies that um, not only saves the revolution, but exports the revolution all over Europe. Uh, and then, of course, becomes, uh, you know, once Napoleon takes office, becomes his tool. Yeah. Um, so before, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about, about Haiti, but before uh, before that, uh, got a, uh, well, okay, so our says, no, he had an ear toes, that somebody else. Yes, that's the same guy. He was a complete genius. He was also a mathemat mathematician. Um very remarkable figure. And actually his, his descendants went on to do other, you know, they were scientists and politicians too. So he was a, he was a remarkable person and apparently had good genes. Uh, and there was also a question about, you know, opinion of, of some of the main kind of uh, players in the revolution. I, I lost the chat from earlier, but they, uh, they mentioned, uh, Robespierre and Murad and Danton. Uh, so, uh, any anything, any thoughts about any of those guys? I know that's a good I'm question. probably one of the only people who feels ambivalent about these people. They see they're very polarizing. People either love them or hate them. But I, I, to me, I, I, um, I mean, in some ways, they're they're you know they failed miserably. You know, most of these guys got executed by each other. Um, uh, they did not carry out a lot of the program that they went into office hoping to carry out. Um, and in some ways, there's just a lot of, I mean, honestly, farce um, with that radical phase of the French Revolution. Um, but I think if you look at it, you know, as a historian, um, try to look at it neutrally in its proper context, I mean, you see the situation these people were thrust into. And it's remarkable that they were able to do anything at all. I mean, the country was in complete chaos. There was no template for what they were doing. I mean, we kind of have this idea in our heads uh, in, in 1848. They talked a lot about this, that they already knew what a revolution was because they'd seen the French Revolution. And so it's you know this powerful thing in their historical memory that when people start you know getting into the streets, the government's under pressure, people kind of understand what's happening and what what each kind of class and, and political camps uh, you know role is in that situation. But in France, you know, they were the ones writing the rule book for this stuff. So they had no idea what they were doing. And, um, you know, they are beset by two different internal insurgencies. Um, there's enemy armies coming towards Paris, some of which got, you know, within a few few weeks march of the city. Um, so and these guys are amateurs. They're like, you know, lawyers and businessmen. And Danton was like a paralegal. Um, uh, Robespierre was a like a like a you know, crusading uh, rural poor person's rights lawyer out in the provinces only a few years before he came to power. So you look at who these guys were and what the task before them was. And in the context, it's kind of amazing that they were able to do what they did do. E even though I think in the final analysis, you have to admit that they made so many mistakes and, you know, so many failures along the way. 
um, it's a it's a remarkable situation, and I uh, I don't think most people would do much better. Um, there is a lot of admirable about these people too. I don't want to discount that, but I mean, in some ways, they look like clowns some of the time, and that's just kind of how history is. Yeah, I stopped reading history in such a way where it's about taking sides, at least, especially as far back as 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 then, right? And I think that it's often a good entry point for uh, thought experiments and hypotheticals, especially as it relates to more modern politics. Like when we, let's say in the Russian Revolution, the debates in the 1920s over agricultural policy, over the political course of the revolution and whatever else, there's discernible camps, there's a certain level of even there in those conditions, like state control where state, like theoretical ideas can actually become um, policy. Um, obviously, in the end, under Stalin for worse, but but possibly, you know, for for better. Uh, but but like Everett was saying, you know, this is just a completely different different um, a period, and it's hard to say to what extent Robespierre was ever in control of anything other than a very um, yeah, even his 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 uh, even the like very small ruling clique. To what extent, you know, he he was able to pull all the um, all the strings. Uh, I think, though, we could take inspiration from figures that saw, I guess, that so much of their society had to be radically changed um, and that uh, it would take mass politics to um, to change it. And I think that that differentiated them from just about every single uh, other, you know, quote unquote, middle class uh, you know, a, a group of, of insurrectionaries. Um, ever like it's very common uh, in a revolution to just want to tamp down the passions right away and figure out how to govern. But for some reason, they just pushed it further and further and heightened contradictions. And part of that was their own incompetence, I guess, and part of that was by by design. But it was a very you know novel um, novel uh, period, and 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 um, certainly Europe throughout the. 18th and 19th uh, century were just filled with with the most horrendous crimes coming from state policy in Europe, and, and that continued. And, and obviously, the 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 real crimes and the rampant executions and, and abuses of human rights and whatever else that happened during this this period is going to get a lot of um, a lot of inten- uh, attention. But I think it obviously has to be contextualized, and of course the same kind of Tory historians that have begrudging respect for Napoleon, uh, who led countless tens of thousands to slaughter on the battlefields or through disease and whatever else, um, have no such sympathy for the for the uh, Jacobins who oversaw, um, I would guess, a, a far less substantial uh, body count. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, one of the, the figures that always always really strikes me is I, I think that uh, in the Mike Duncan uh podcast season on the French Revolution, you know, uh, which I liked a great deal, but I mean, he goes into a lot of gory detail about about the uh, the sort of terror oversaw by the Committee of Public Safety, uh, and he sort of mentions for like a sentence uh, that uh, that the uh, that uh, in in Poland, you know, when they were like busily massacring you know local Jacobin sympathizers there, that was. Um, you know that was uh, you know they killed more people there than in the entirety of the uh, the terror in France. It's like, one of my favorite statistics. Yeah, the the, the sack of, of Praga in in Poland, not Prague, Praga. Uh, the the Russians killed more people in one day than the Jacobins killed in Paris during the terror. Same with um, you know no one ever talks about what happened in Ireland in 1798, um, where there's a rebellion by mostly well not mostly uh, but. Um, uh, there's a rebellion that's associated with the Catholic population by the powers that be, even though it's mostly led by Protestants. And in this, during the suppression of that rebellion, um, basically the uh, British authorities just let Protestant militias run wild in the country for like a year. And they're, I mean, lynching people, raping people. I mean, it was really horrific stuff. But, um, you know, the, the exact same thing that's going on just across the ocean um, with the uh, regard to the uh, the Vendée Rebellion against the French Republic, you know that is uh, you know just immortalized in art and stories and song, um, and uh, it's 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 interesting. 
I also just got I just got finished with this series on the Haitian Revolution, and my God, I mean, uh, you know, the stuff going on in the West Indies in this period just pales compared to any of the atrocities in Europe committed by anyone. I mean, it's really horrific stuff, um, and and personal and and uh, kind of uh, grotesque in a mm -hmm. way that it's not in Europe. So it's 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 always a a tricky thing because I I don't want to downplay the fact that. I mean, the stuff, some of the things the revolutionary government did were horrible. I mean, they turned, Napoleon's stomach was turned by the, by the terror. So, I mean, this is bad, bloody stuff, but it's just, it's not unusual for this era. Um, you know, this is an era when states are discovering the kind of power they have. They're improving their administrations. They're improving their armies. They're improving their, their law enforcement and kind of paramilitary forces. And they're just kind of coming to the understanding that, you know, you can sign an order and thousands of people are just gone and you don't have to think about it or worry about it ever again. And obviously we'll see, you know, in the 20th century, just how far that can be taken. But this is the era when that's being, you know, that they're coming into that awareness, states, powerful people, wealthy people, um, that there's that these are that this that that kind of destruction and brutality is is within um, within their grasp and within the grasp of kind of normal operations. You know, you don't have to be a butcher to do this stuff. You just, you know, you can be a clerk and sign a paper and it's just done by other people. And um, that's not something that previous governments and previous areas of history really could do. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, you know, Haiti uh, and because this is also something you should talk about, you know, just a little bit before we, uh, we wrap up uh, because... Uh, you know, both because, as has been mentioned, I mean, this this is uh, you know, this is part of what's being referred to in uh, in you know Jacobin magazines. Uh, use the word Jacobin, uh, C.L.R. James's book on uh, on the, the Haitian Revolution, and also uh, also because I mean, this this really does seem like one of the most sort of uh, significant you know flowerings of uh, the. Um, you know, of the French Revolution and, and, and of, you know, and of the sort of uh, a different version of the, the argument you was kind of running through earlier with Bhaskar about how, you know, these, uh, these proclaimed ideals of the, the French Revolution, you know, that, uh, of, you know, universal human equality and, and, uh, and freedom and solidarity, uh, you know, are, are things that, you know, I mean, like in that case, clearly, I mean, we're taken up by people who the people who were proclaiming that were, didn't necessarily have in mind, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to listen or they're not going to take it seriously. Yeah, to me, you know, this is the great significance. I mean, other than the profound impact in Haiti itself, um, this is kind of one of the most significant things about the Haitian Revolution to the, the world is that you know, this was one of the great tests of the French Revolution. You know, is it a universal Mm -hmm. revolution as proclaimed by the revolutionaries themselves or is it just another you know the english civil war the parliamentary faction had their own ideology that they claimed was universal but was really based in english puritanism um and th and th that's been true of many rebellions of the past where they developed these kind of ersatz ideologies to to justify what they were doing and so that was one of the big questions of the french revolution is is this just another you know, like the English Civil War, where some guys overthrew the government and they need to come up with, you know, you got to sleep at night. So why did we do it? Or do they mean it? Are these act are they actually speaking to something universal in the human condition? And I mean, it's a mixed record because there are some places where the French completely went back on their ideals, especially in Haiti. But the significance of Haiti is that those ideas got turned against the French government by the Haitians. And proved just as powerful, if not more so, you know, wielded by the uh, by the uh, the rebels who were fighting against Republican France. So, to me, I mean, that is a, a very powerful test. You know, is it universal? Well, it works just as well against its originators. So, it seems like that there is something there. But in the same way that that the French Revolution itself encountered uh, the contradictions of. Um, of certain bourgeois elements that just wanted to restore stability and wanted to more tightly control mass action that related to their reaction to what was going on in Haiti. So you have the most radical elements of the French Revolution who were able to say, 
yes, slavery should be should be abolished. Um, whereas by the time the maritime bourgeoisie might have been imbued with a lot of the same enlightenment idea, but they also have this vested, you know, material interest in maintaining the system um, itself. So I think where Marxists would traditionally think about uh, the French Revolution and think about, you know, what they call bourgeois uh, revolutions, they would lay out this contradiction between the universal enlightenment um, ideology and the uh, material interests. And obviously, at the end of the day, the material interests would always um, win out. But that was another unique thing about some of the most radical uh, Jacobins of the, the French Revolution is that they didn't have quite the same material contradictions. They, they had it to some degree, but not as much as these these uh, big, powerful interests that took the power of country um, after, uh, over after. And it's a great preview of the the contradictions of liberalism that would emerge in the next half century. And ultimately, I think it's a great preview of the split between the socialist left and the non-socialist left, whatever that might yeah. be. Um, because, you know, the, you know, the original revolutionaries were, you know, free market economics and capitalism were, core parts of the revolution, you know, just as much as um, giving bread to the people was. And um, so that's, you know, that that is a contradiction there. You know, how how much are we, you know, how seriously are we taking these enlightenment principles versus how seriously are we taking our commitment to markets? And I think this was the first time in history you really see a, a truly liberal bourgeois government having to make those choices. And um, that's obviously something that we'll see play out. I mean, even up until today, that we, that's still a dynamic we see play out. Yeah, and I mean, because of that, the mass politics element that Oscar mentioned earlier, I mean, you have people who are, sure, I mean, like, uh, enlightenment, liberal, you know, bourgeois revolutionaries whose, like, ideological commitment would really be to free markets, but, like, you have to have, you know, you, you have to have, like, price controls, you know, on what you can sell bread for and stuff like that, because... You know, because the, uh, the the sans culottes who put you in power in the first place are going to kill you if you don't. So, all right. Oh, um, Strom, thank you for the super chats. Is the radical liberal myth of the citizen at least posits uh, that there are no superhuman personalities uh, like that? Uh, so, and uh, suspect anyone who indiscriminately uh, craps of the English, American, French revolutions being ironically uh, neo-radlib. I'm not sure what that means, but you should, you know, you should, you should certainly, you know, I think honor the legacy of uh, of all of these revolutions. You know, I, I like, uh, you know, uh, other stuff was going on this year, so I didn't. But you know, I usually post something on Fourth of July about how you shouldn't be a weirdo about it. You know, like like take the, uh, you know, take the lefty interpretation of the. Uh, of, of the history instead of just, you know, discounting it as the beginning. Very of the day off from wage labor for most people, right? So, you know, that means that today it's objectively historically progressive, even though we could, you know, uh, debate it after. But yeah, I think we we definitely lean on the Harvey K side of things, right, right Ben, <laughs> in the, in the uh, yeah, American revolution debate. Sure. Yeah, right. You know, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, the thing, the uh, the Michael Harrington line, right? You got to see the seed beneath the snow. Uh, that, um, or else, you know, or else, what's the point? Uh, yeah, sorry, were you going to say? But like, I think we are right to see like the French Revolution is obviously in the, that period is characterized by tons of military conflict, but we and I think posterity remembers it as mass action. Whereas the American Revolution does have mass action, but we remember it as primarily a military, you know, conflict with like an undercurrent of like, you know, basically civil war, you know, because of the the amount of loyalists in the country or whatever. And I think that interpretation is basically right in terms of uh, why the French Revolution, I think, has captured the imagination of an entire world, uh, whereas the American Revolution. So, you know, so you're breaking up. You know, but you know, didn't have the same you know, impact. It was always like more parochial, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, like, in some ways, it feels like the American Revolution was like stuck in the um, 
like the first phase of the uh, of the French Revolution, maybe you know, like 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 the the sort of um, you know level of revolution you know going on uh, is 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 relatively uh, is relatively shallow, right? You know, in terms of of overturning you know established power structures, maybe partly because the English crown was so far away. Uh, and so there, there was less to, that had to be overturned to sort of accomplish some basic, you know, bourgeois democratic things. But I mean, there's also a sense like the, I mean, I'm sure this is like, um, like I'm sure there, I'm sure this would like make a, you know, historian with a nuanced view cringe in many ways. But I mean, like I sort of also think about it as like in a way, like one important difference between the American and French revolutions is that like, you know, we, we, we waited to have our war with our Vendée until the, uh, until the 1860s. There's something to that. Well, and furthermore, you know, just on the basic level, you know, the people of Philadelphia never stormed into the Continental Congress and kicked out all the conservatives and declared a new state. It never happened. That did happen in France. So you don't get, um, you know, in, in, in the French Revolution, there are these phases. And in the American Revolution, it's, you know, it's, it's the colonial assemblies and the, uh, and the uh, the Continental Congress straight through. So just on a basic level, there's not these these internal conflicts, um, which I think is what really were the engine pushing the French Revolution in this more radical direction. Yeah, in Philly, there's only revolution when the Eagles win. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, before we go, going to uh, bring on our graphic designer, uh, J. Andrew World, uh, for uh, just a second. Uh, Wish him happy birthday. His birthday is Bastille Day. How good is that? Nice. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I know the French really know how to celebrate my birthday, military parades, fireworks. I wish everybody's birthday could be celebrated like how the French celebrate mine. Uh, <laughs> it's so great to be a French institution. Thank everybody so much for, for uh, being here. So. Yeah, uh, do you, uh, and you're going to be elsewhere on YouTube tonight, right? Yeah, uh, I'm doing a uh, special birthday stream with one of my oldest friends in the world, uh, Gabriel Horn. He's a uh, actor, director, um, uh, writer out of Hollywood. He's got uh, some, some cool new projects he's going to be telling us about. And we're going to be talking about the movie Tapeheads. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the uh, description here. Uh, so uh, thank you, uh, Bhaskar and Everett. I guess we should uh, we should plug the the Jacobin subscription thing again. Before. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, seven eighty nine, uh, and then I think for international actually seventeen eighty nine, right? Yeah, we got to turn that off soon. It's it's late for them, so I, I think it'll keep working for another like three or four hours. But maybe we'll keep it on to the end of the week. But yeah, if you like Jacobin, if you like the work of such authors as Ben Burgess, you should subscribe uh, to it in print. You know, we've been, uh, we, we, we're doing more of the audio video stuff, I, I think, but Ben and I are working on a book together and, you know, we have to print Jackman magazine. So, so we, we, we are, um, what do you call it? Um, like, like, like Lee, we're like uh, disrupting, you know, multimedia platform, you know, citizens revolt or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually just thinking a few minutes ago how about how it's kind of funny we're talking about the French Revolution. And I think, I don't remember exactly how many articles ago, but not that many articles ago. Uh, the thing I wrote for Jacobin was about the uh, abolishing the death penalty, which I guess, to be fair, was uh, Robespierre's position, I think, up until about six months before the terror started. <laughs> things, things move fast. Yeah, and you know we wanted to wither away the state up until you know um, September nineteen seventeen. Um, yeah, fair enough. Um, oh, uh, real quick before we go, El Macho Shrigma, thank you for the super chats. Would it be valuable for the left? Speak out about personal responsibility, personal goals, dreams, callings, the same seriousness we do social responsibility, social change, democracy at the workplace. I mean, that's a huge question, uh, and I'm not. I think probably could be able to do it very much justice in the last minute of the, uh, the stream. But um, I mean, like in a way, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I guess, I, I guess I'd say two things about it and then see if anybody else wants to chime in. Like, I, I think that one is um, there probably is something that's, that's bad about leaving all sort of personal responsibility advocacy to the right. 
I remember like talking about this with Michael Brooks years ago about how, you know, it's like kind of a shame that, you know, that, that we don't have the, uh, you know, we like, we don't have somebody to write books about how you should clean your room and, you know, keep your back straight, you know, who's, who's a, uh, who's a leftist. Uh, but, uh, but, but then, you know, on the, uh, you know, <laughs> clean your room and, and organize the union. Uh, but, uh, but on the like personal goals, dreams, callings thing, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit more sure what to say about, you know, that part. Cause I mean, to, to my mind, I mean, that's the point of, of any kind of uh, emancipatory politics, right? I mean, we you know, want a society where people, you know, aren't, don't have to work all the time where they, they're, they're less, you know, they're less uh, worried about, you know, quitting their job, you know, like, like even like basic social democratic things, like you're not worried that if you quit your job, you know, you won't have health insurance. <laughs> Uh, so you can, you know, do whatever the hell you want with the, your life. I mean, if that's not the point, I don't know what it is. Yeah, we want to combine the two things, not really separate them. Though I do, I do think, uh, remember that Home Depot slogan from like three, four years ago? They ran it for like almost a decade in their ads, like, you could do it, we can help. I, I think that's a good, you know, uh, approach to people. Like, yeah, sure, you could improve your your life, but there's certain things the state can do. There's certain things that collective action can do that will actually empower you as an individual agent. And you participating in this collective struggle will also empower the collective. You know, that's that's uh, the unity of those two things are are there. Um, um, and yeah, I think personal goals, dreams, and callings definitely fits within that. Obviously, the the uh, word personal responsibility, I think we would have to reframe from kind of a hectoring about personal responsibility to like some sort of collective responsibility to take part in struggle. Like if you're a member uh, at a, of a union at a workplace that's going on strike, kind of that, that sense of responsibility and duty and commitment to like some sort of radical civil society or to a, uh, a workplace struggle or to a political party, I think is obviously there, but um, but yeah, between the two, the weight should be on the social responsibility, but we shouldn't cut out the, the personal end of it too. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you know, I mean, I don't know, you do the levee on mass and, you know, you, you have to go to the, you know, the front <laughs> of your part to defend, uh, defend fatherland, you know, so there, there's, there's something there. I was about to say, that's the revolutionaries talked about that. There was a revolutionary who was killed at age 12 and there was a verse about him and it said that, you know, that people were sad for him, but he lived more than a slave of a monarch that, you know, a, the, a coward has never known life the way that, a, you know, a free Republican has. And I think that would maybe would not be so bad to get back to that. Yeah. Maybe like a 22 year old or something. 12. Yeah, 12 is too young. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, before we uh, we should probably end the stream before we like call for a youth. I think they call it a, a, a children's militia, child soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not gonna we're not gonna start advocating uh, child soldiers. The uh, that, that that would be quite a jump, right? Like if it's like if it's like last year, like the uh, the the Jacobin DSA kind of party line was all about like electing Bernie Sanders president, and like the strategy for social change had drifted so far that it was like okay, so we're gonna have to round up some child soldiers. I, I hate to say this, guys. Like before I came on, I, I was training my children how to be child soldiers. Uh, uh, you know, because because they're teenagers now and uh, they got to learn how to fight. But I guess maybe I should have stopped. Yeah. Uh, so uh, all right. So while while we're still, uh, you know, while we're still doing the good, you know, cats get, uh, you know, middle road that stall falls short of. Uh, of the uh, the you know Coney Lords Resistance Army uh, you know model of organization, uh, we will uh, we will end the stream. I uh, uh, thank you guys uh, so much uh, for coming on. Happy Bastille Day! Happy, Happy Bastille Day! Thanks for having us. Viva la France! <laughs>